Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Reading During Recess. My name is Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen, and I'm a writer and high school teacher. And today we are going to be talking to you all about the classic Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I feel like I always say that I'm so excited about almost every book we do, mm-hmm. but I'm especially excited for this one. Yeah. So Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was written by Lewis Carroll, which is the pen name for Charles Ludwig Dodgson. The book was published in 1865 and is part of the literary nonsense genre and really sort of pioneered that genre, especially for children. Uh, The artist John Tenniel provided 42 wood engraved illustrations for the book, which are remain some of the most famous literary illustrations in the English language. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland was a big hit, and it was followed up with Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, which was published in 1871. And the sequel is best known for its Jabberwocky poem, for the poem The Walrus and the Carpenter, and for the characters Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is one of the most famous works of Victorian literature, and it's had a profound influence on fantasy literature and, of course, on pop culture. Yes. A lot of sources that I saw said something along the lines of, next to the Bible, it is the most quoted book in the English language. I don't don't know if that's true, because these sources didn't cite their sources. And it seems Mm. like a difficult thing to prove. So I don't know if that's true, but it certainly is something that I read online. (laughs) (laughs) I I could believe it. It's one of those books that's just like, it's so thoroughly embedded in the zeitgeist, you Mm -hmm. know? Nobody doesn't know Alice in Wonderland. Right. Even if you haven't read it, I think you kind of know what happens. So the book differed from a lot of Victorian children's lit and other literature at the time because it was not didactic and it was not meant to teach some moral or lesson and was instead just aimed to delight and entertain. A lot of books at the time were intended to teach children how to be good kids, well-behaved, ready to enter the workforce. Yes. (laughs) In a few short years. One of the examples that I saw was that uh, like a popular book at the time, around the time Alice in Wonderland was written, and I don't remember the name, was a book in which the children in the book are kind of misbehaving, and the father is like, I'll show you what you need to see to behave better, and he takes them to a gallows. Oh. He takes them to a gallows <laughs> to witness a hanging. Hmm. Um, <laughs> And after that, the children were very quiet and did not move or speak for a very long time. And when they did, it was very subdued. Yes. Eyes had a strange faraway quality. So you can see why Alice would be a delight to Victorian children. Many of the poems in Alice in Wonderland parody other poems, including poetry that was meant to instruct children on moral lessons. And so that's like when Alice is in the book trying to recall her lessons, but she keeps coming up with this nonsense poetry. This nonsense poetry has replaced the didactic poetry that she's learned as a child. And many of these poems, I feel, are like very well-known separate from the book. Mm -hmm. You know, they've garnered their own audience. Yes, definitely. Before we talk about what happens in Alice in Wonderland, it's useful to know a little bit about the man who wrote it. Lewis Carroll was the pen name for Charles Ludwig Dodgson. 
He was born in 1832 and died in 1898, and he was a big nerd. He arrived at this pid name by taking his own name, Charles Ludwig, translating them into Latin as Carolus Ludovicus, and then reversing and retranslating them into English. And he used the name afterward for all of his non-academic works. So he was a logician and mathematician, but he also published, as we know, some nonsense literature. So Lewis Carroll was a strange man, and there is a lot to get into regarding him and his relationships with children. We will talk about that in a little bit, because it's a bit heavy to start off with right off the bat. But just know that we're not ignoring that. It, it will come in yeah, due time. Yeah, we're not time. done. Dodgson was a mathematician who worked as a lecturer at Christ Church, Oxford, you can kind of see his mathematical mind and his logical mind in Alice in Wonderland. I think especially in Through the Looking Glass. Yes. Which is set up like a chessboard. Mm-hmm. So the New Republic published an article in 2015 by Elizabeth Winkler that talked a bit about Lewis Carroll and his work, although they refer to him as Dodgson because that's his real name. And they say... Quote, though Dodgson seems to keep his academic life separate from his storytelling, there is an interesting correlation between his tales for children and his mathematical work. Both involve figuring out the game, the laws by which things work. His stories weren't just nonsense. They played with the multiple meanings of words, with perspective and interpretation, and with the rules of logic. Dodgson was fascinated by mathematical puzzles. He discovered, for instance, a formula to calculate in your head the day of the week for any date, and had a special interest in how logical thinking develops. Nerd alert. <laughs> as part of his work as a math teacher at Oxford, he also became an ordained deacon in the Church of England. And as a deacon, he couldn't marry. If he had gone on mm. further to become a priest, then he could have married but he never did that. There are various reasons as to why he might have chosen to never do that. One of them being that he had a speech impediment. He had a, a stutter. Mm -hmm. So being a priest would probably be pretty intimidating. Another reason could be one that we'll talk about later. So one thing about Dodgson that has uh, been discussed at length and which we will later discuss at some length is his fixation on and fascination with childhood and children. He got along very well with children. He was the eldest brother of eight younger siblings. And as Sarah said, he had a stammer, so it's possible that he just might have felt more comfortable speaking to children rather than adults. But in his adulthood, he had child friends who were typically the children of his friends and colleagues. But his favorites were almost undoubtedly the children of Henry George Little, who was the Dean of Christ Church. And his favorite among those favorites was Alice Little, the purported inspiration for Alice's adventures in Wonderland. Alice Little in 1932, when interviewed, remembered that she and her sisters, quote, used to sit on the big sofa on each side of him while he told us stories, illustrating them by pencil or ink drawings as he went along. He seemed to have an endless store of these fantastical tales, which he made up as he told them, drawing busily on a large sheet of paper all the time. They were not always entirely new. Sometimes they were new versions of old stories. Sometimes they started on the old basis, but grew into new tales, owing to the frequent interruptions, which opened up fresh and undreamed of possibilities. And the story of Alice in Wonderland originated in 1862 on July 4th. 
Hell yeah, America. That's a true patriot. (laughs) So on July 4th in 1862, Dodgson, a.k.a. Carroll, and his friend Robinson Duckworth, which is just a great name. (laughs) Top to bottom, beginning to end. That guy is British. (laughs) Robinson Duckworth was also a fellow at Trinity, so a fellow academic and adult. Um, I just feel like it's anytime he has a friend who's an adult, I feel like it's worth you know clarifying is, because yes. it doesn't happen that often. Uh, you know what? You got me there. So he and Robinson Duckworth took a rowboat trip up the Thames with the little children and to entertain the girls, Dodgson told them the story that he called Alice's Adventures Underground. Alice Little requested that he write down the story, which he later did. He hand wrote it down and hand illustrated it and gave it to her as a Christmas present. And what's remarkable is that this original manuscript, which is at, I think, the British Library, has no errors in it at all. Wow. Like, there's nothing scratched out or blotted over. So this is a man who was, like, a serious perfectionist. fascinating. Yes. Right? And so Carol, from prompting from other adult friends published the book as Alice's Adventures in Wonderland in 1865. And there our story begins. So childhood obviously held a lot of significance for Carol. Robert McCrum wrote in The Guardian in 2015, quote, childhood was the idol Dodgson never quite recovered from, a parallel world where time stood still. Virginia Woolf believed that this held the key to the man and was always, quote, an impediment at the center of his being. So by the time of Dodgson's death, Alice, which the two volumes as a single artistic triumph, had become the most popular children's book in England. And by the time of his centenary in 1932, it was one of the most popular and perhaps the most famous in the world. Let's begin with a bit of a plot summary, because like we said, it's a very well-known book, but I think it's worth revisiting what exactly happens in this story. Absolutely. The book opens with Alice sitting lazily on a riverbank alongside her older sister, reading over her shoulder and becoming drowsy. When suddenly, perhaps one of the most famous moments in literary history, Alice sees a white rabbit running by and is shocked to see it pull a pocket watch from its pocket and shout that he's late. And so the rabbit leaps down a rabbit hole and Alice, being very curious and brave, follows him. The tunnel eventually falls sharply into what seems to be a deep well, and all Alice falls for a great while. There's furniture, like bookshelves and cupboards and things falling alongside her, and she remains profoundly calm, despite the She does. Terror. She's, like, completely unbothered. So after falling for quite some time, uh, Alice lands in a great hallway, which is lined with small doors, and finds a key resting on a glass table. And she tests out the key on all of the doors and finds that the only one it fits is a tiny little, it's about like 15 inches high, uh, door at the end of the hall. And when she peers through the peephole, she is charmed to see gardens and flowers, but of course she cannot possibly fit through it. So she wonders what to do and she spots a little vial labeled Drink Me. She checks for a poison label, which is very smart, very smart of her, shows remarkable foresight. Shall I read it? Yeah. It was all very well to say, drink me, but the wise little Alice was not going to do that in a hurry. No, I'll look first, she said, and see whether it's marked poison or not. For she had read several nice little stories about children who had got burned up and eaten by wild beasts, 
and other unpleasant things, all because they would not remember the simple rules their friends had taught them, such as that a red-hot poker will burn you if you hold it too long, and that if you cut your finger very deeply with a knife, it usually bleeds. And she had never forgotten that if you drink much from a bottle marked poison, it is almost certain to disagree with you sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, so that's a reference to those sort of didactic stories. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking that. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a lot of Lemony Snicket. Yes, I had that thought a lot in this book. The sort of humorous understatement, you know? Yeah, the dry mock morality. Right. And even like the falling through the tunnel is like falling through the elevator shaft. And Alice going on trial at the end similar yeah. to how the series of unfortunate events ha what happens in the second to last book and also the way that the i guess they're not really adults because a lot of them are like non-human but the way that authority figures in alice in wonderland are completely nonsensical so unhelpful stupid yeah fixated uh, often on very like authoritarian yeah yes yeah, yeah. but uh complete idiots mm -hmm. that is such a good point wow that's really interesting so Alice drinks the little vial and its contents make her shrink to the perfect size, but she didn't grab the key off the table before she shrank. So now she can't get the key, but she spots a little cake and printed on the cake are the words eat me. And because this child will insist on putting absolutely everything in her mouth, she does. And she grows about nine feet. So she's way too big for the door. Yeah. <laughs> And for life. She's, yeah, and she's too big for the hall that she's in. And this causes our girl to have this sudden intense identity crisis. Because she's just... Because she's changed so much mm -hmm. that she then, like, thinks about who in her life she might be. It's like, I don't know who she knows who's nine feet tall <laughs> or ten inches, but she's like, maybe I'm my friend Mabel. And then does this remarkable dig on Mabel where she's just like, oh, you know what? But I know lots of things and Mabel doesn't know, like, anything. <laughs> and then she's like, you know what? Maybe I really am Mabel. And she gets super upset and she's like, I shall have to go and live in that pokey little house and have next to no toys to play with and ever so many lessons to learn. She calls Mabel stupid and poor in the span of like 30 seconds. Poor Mabel, man. She's reading right? this book and it's like, what the? Yeah, she's like one of Lewis Carroll's non-preferred child friends. <laughs> yeah. So while Alice is having an identity crisis and also being an elitist hag, the white rabbit runs by again and Alice calls out to him and he runs away, but because she's like nine feet tall. Yeah. But he drops his fan and his gloves and Alice picks up the fan and starts to sort of absentmindedly fan herself while crying. She's crying very hard. And suddenly she finds herself shrinking again, likely because of the fan. And then she falls into a pool of her own tears that she just cried, which quickly becomes a sea. And as she floats, she meets and manages to thrice offend a passing mouse. This girl just will not keep her foot out of her mouth. <laughs> it's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. She meets this mouse. She tries to speak to it in French, and I think she manages to use the word cat. Mm -hmm. And the mouse is very upset. And then she's like, but I wish you could meet my cat, who is great and She's great because she kills so many mice. And then she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Did I upset you? <laughs> and the mouse is like, a little. 
Despite Alice's ignorance, the mouse accompanies her to shore, where they are joined by a large group of birds and other small animals who had also fallen into the natural disaster that Alice (laughs) created with her body. And after debating how to dry off, the group holds a caucus race. It involves running at no particular speed, order, or location until such a time as they happen to be dry. It reminds me a lot of watching, like, kindergartners do gym class. Yeah, I was, I literally wrote in the margin, I was like, pacer test. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Among the animals is a dodo who declares that everybody is a winner, which is a total millennial snowflake move because he (laughs) then insists that everyone get prizes. And Alice gets bullied into giving up her comfits, I think that's pronounced as prizes, which are really depressing sounding little Victorian candy. It sounds like it's just like sugar around a nut or seed. And then there's like only enough for the birds and the other animals. So Alice doesn't get a prize. And they're like, oh my God, she has to have a prize. And Alice is like, I'm fine, really. And they're like, no. And Alice gives them a thimble that she finds in her pocket and they give her back the thimble. So the mouse begins to recite a poem to, I guess, like explain his backstory. And Alice manages to piss him off again. (laughs) And then inadvertently drives the entire crowd away by talking about her cat again. (laughs) And once again, talking about how good her cat is at killing people who look like them. Yeah. Or animals. Honestly, representation for people with no social skills. (laughs) Like, it's so good to see. Left alone, Alice again encounters the white rabbit, and he mistakes her for a servant and orders her to go fetch his things from his house. So Alice enters his house, and inside she finds an unmarked bottle of liquid and doesn't drink it. (laughs) Just kidding. Of course she drinks it and immediately grows to the size of the room. And of course, the rabbit comes back to find an enormous nine-year-old sticking out of his house, and he's like understandably a little pissed. And he starts yelling for his servants, who include a guy named Bill the Lizard, who tries to crawl down the chimney to remove Alice, and she just, like, kicks him out of it (laughs) and sends him, like, rocketing through the air. Alice has caused so much destruction. Yeah, she's an unbelievable menace. She is. It's a terrible thing. The animals threaten to burn down the house but they eventually resort to pelting Alice with pebbles that turn into little cakes. And Alice, of course, eats one. And she shrinks herself down and flees into the forest. And in the forest uh, is another famous image from this book. Alice meets the hookah-smoking caterpillar who is sitting on a mushroom. And Alice explains her intense identity crisis and relates it a lot to her inability to stay one consistent size. Maybe stop eating things would be my (laughs) advice. What do I know? And the caterpillar encourages her to recite poetry. I guess to ground herself, to prove what she knows or doesn't know. I guess so. But I think she does a great job. She recites one of my favorite poems of all time, which is You Are Old, Father William, which is so much fun. Can I read part of it? Yeah. You are old, Father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white. And yet, you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? In my youth, Father William replied to his son, I feared it might injure the brain. But now that I'm perfectly sure I have none, why I do it again and again? And yeah, it goes on like that. I love it. I think it's so cute. Mm -hmm. It's so fun. Yeah. 
I think Alice does a great job, mm-hmm. but the caterpillar is unimpressed, and he crawls away into the grass and tells her, one side will make you larger, and one will make you smaller. And Alice asks him what he means, and he explains that he's talking about the mushroom. So obviously it's kind of hard to figure out what one side of a circle is. <laughs> but Alice breaks off a piece from each side and finds that the first one, a bite from the first one makes her shrink. Or at least it seems. <laughs> she says that she is shrinking. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. But it doesn't seem to be that she is so much as shrinking as that she has been, like, compacted. Yeah. she feels her chin, she feels a sharp blow on her chin and realizes that it has, like, hit her shoe. <laughs> God, that's so upsetting. Right? Which just implies that she has been folded up, you know? Yeah. That's not what shrinking is. No. Yeah, uh, kind of like I an accordion. Exactly. I found that very distressing in my youth. And a bite from the other piece makes her neck grow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just her neck. Yeah. And this leads an irascible pigeon to mistake her for a serpent. But finally, Alice is able to nibble a little from each side of the mushroom until she goes back to her normal size. So Alice walks through the woods and she comes upon a little house, which she learns belongs to a duchess. And outside she sees a fish-faced footman hand a frog-faced footman an invitation from the queen to the duchess to join her for croquet. Alice invites herself inside, as she likes to do, and finds the duchess nursing a wailing baby while the cook alternates between preparing pepper soup and hurling saucepans at the duchess and the baby. The duchess pushes the baby on Alice, who takes it out of the house, where it promptly turns into a pig. And Alice lets it go, returns to the woods, where she meets the Cheshire cat, um, which had been in the duchess's house. The Cheshire cat explains that everyone in Wonderland is mad, including Alice, and gives her directions to visit. He's probably the most helpful being she has encountered. He at least seems the most sane, but he directs her to visit either the March Hare or the Mad Hatter before he vanishes, leaving behind the famous floating grin. That always scared me as a kid. (laughs) Yeah, that is because the Cheshire Cat in the movie is terrifying. It is. It's so scary. I know. I just watched the movie yesterday and I can confirm that he is that. Thing really free. Disney, and I feel like at that time period, was very good at creating like weird, manic, nightmare characters. Yeah. Alice travels to the March Harris house where she finds him having a tea party with the Mad Hatter and a Dormouse. And the Hatter explains that it is always tea time, something that happened after he made an enemy of time by trying to murder it. And he gives Alice unanswerable riddles and speaks to her rudely. And eventually Alice leaves, calling it the quote, stupidest tea party she has ever been to. And meanwhile, the Mad Hatter and the Hare stuff the Dormouse into the teapot. Because why not? I love that scene. I know. Oh, she, like, turns around to see if they're going to be like, wait, come back. And they're, like, just busy stuffing the Dormouse in there. (laughs) I love the Dormouse. Have you ever seen pictures of a real Dormouse? Yes. They are so cute. Have you seen? They snore. They go into, like, a... It's not, like, hibernation. But, you know, it's, like, a torpid, I think it's pronounced, Mm -hmm. state an incredibly deep sleep and they snore they make a little whistling squeaking noise as they breathe that's so cute it is extremely cute so alice once again finds herself in that long hall full of doors 
and this time she thinks to take the key before eating some of the mushroom to shrink herself down and enter the garden. And she quickly comes across three gardeners who are all shaped like cards, like playing cards, but with um, hands and feet and heads, who are hastily painting a white rosebush red. They explained to her that they fear the temper of the Queen of Hearts, who wanted red roses. And the Queen of Hearts and her royal procession appear, and she immediately orders Alice, along with the gardeners, to be beheaded. Because she's just, like, a really nice, chill lady. I love her. She has good vibes. <laughs> Alice helpfully stuffs the gardeners into a flower pot, confusing the soldiers, and joins the queen for a game of croquet. The croquet ground is, and the game on the whole, is an absolute mess. So it's held in this very hilly, odd location. And the mallets are live flamingos, and the balls are live hedgehogs. And the queen won't stop ordering for everybody's execution. And honestly, it just feels like an average middle school gym class. <laughs> uh, and in the middle of all of it, Alice sees the Cheshire Cat again, who appears as a floating head and asks her how she's doing. Which is honestly very considerate, especially compared to like everyone else she has encountered. Mm -hmm. Who has been insanely rude. This is the only person Alice sees twice who acknowledges her. Yeah. When the king butts into the conversation, the Cheshire Cat dismisses him, and the king calls for his execution. Unfortunately, he and the soldiers are unable to agree on whether or not a bodiless head can be beheaded. The Queen of Hearts sends soldiers to go fetch the Duchess from prison, hoping that she can deal with the Cheshire Cat. And when she arrives, the Duchess, who has met Alice before when she was in her house, uh, mm -hmm. attempts to befriend Alice, and Alice is like, no dice, get your chin off my shoulder, you rude hag. Because the Duchess, like, spends the entire time talking to her about morals. I guess another callback to Victorian literature. Mm -hmm. Like, everything she says, she's like, and the moral of this. Yeah. They talk about mustard, and Alice is like, it's a mineral. And the Duchess is like, definitely. And then Alice is like, you know what? Never mind. It's a plant. And the Duchess is like, definitely. And Alice was like, I cannot stand sycophants. <laughs> she's had it. And I don't blame her, because it sounds like... The Duchess, this whole time that they're walking together, has her chin on Alice's shoulder. Yeah. And it's, like, digging into her. I can feel how irritating that must be. <laughs> Just reading it, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I hate that. <laughs> so the Queen of Hearts finally chases the Duchess off and sends Alice to visit the Mock Turtle to hear his story. She sends along a griffin as Alice's escort, and the two visit the Mock Turtle on a rock ledge. And the Mock Turtle cries constantly and tries to one-up Alice with his education before teaching her to dance the lobster quadrille, which involves each animal partnering with a lobster and then whipping said partner into the ocean. <laughs> I love this scene. It's like the, the griffin and the Mock Turtle are showing her together. It's very chaotic. The Mock Turtle starts explaining it, and the griffin says, Why, said the griffin, you must form into a line along the seashore. Two lines, cried the Mock Turtle. Seals, turtles, salmon, and so on. Then, when you've cleared all the jellyfish out of the way, that generally takes some time, interrupted the griffin. You advance twice. Each with a lobster as a partner, cried the griffin. Of course, the Mock Turtle said. Advance twice, set to partners, change lobsters, and retire in the same order, continued the griffin. Then... You know, the Mock Turtle went on. You throw the... The lobsters! shouted the griffin with a bound into the air. As far out to sea as you can... Swim after them! screamed the griffin. Turn a somersault in the sea! cried the Mock Turtle, capering wildly about. Change lobsters! 
again, yelled the griffin at the top of his voice. Back to land again, and that's all the first figure, said the mock turtle, suddenly dropping his voice. And the two creatures, who had been jumping about like mad things all this time, sat down again very sadly and quietly and looked at Alice. (laughs) So yeah, it seems like a pretty simple routine. Yeah, and then they invite her to try it, and they're like, we can do it without the lobsters, you know. (laughs) Like, can you? It sounds like your partner has to be a lobster. Yeah, they seem pretty important. Then uh, the mock turtle ends the visit by singing the turtle soup to Alice while he sobs hysterically. And suddenly a voice in the distance calls out that the trial is beginning, and Alice and the griffin take off back for the castle. And when they arrive, they find that all of the animals have assembled to try the Knave of Hearts, who has been accused of having stolen the Queen's tarts. The King of Hearts is the judge, and the White Rabbit is the officer of the court. And the jury is my favorite part. It's made up of the dumbest group of animals who begin the proceedings by writing down their own names so they don't forget them. (laughs) As the Griffin explains to Alice, and Alice is like, stupid things, and they all write down stupid things on their little slates. The Hatter is called as a witness, and he becomes so nervous that he takes a large bite out of his teacup. Meanwhile, Alice has begun to grow to her regular size. And after a few more odd depositions, Alice is called in as a witness. In a final microaggression on all the small animals of Wonderland, Alice manages to dump them all over the floor while she's getting out of the witness box. So Alice is, I guess, like excited or surprised to be a witness, and she jumps up and she upends the entire box of jurors, and all of the animals fall out. Oh, I beg your pardon, she exclaimed in a tone of great dismay, and began picking them up again as quickly as she could. For the accident of the goldfish kept running in her head, and she had a vague sort of idea that they must be collected at once and put back in the jury box, or they would die. (laughs) So she just kind of, like, stuffs them in at random. (laughs) The other part of this trial that I absolutely love is the suppression of the guinea pigs. So while the Hatter is giving his- while the Hatter is being deposed, he says, I'm a poor man, your majesty. You are a very poor speaker, said the king. Here, one of the guinea pigs cheered and was immediately suppressed by the officers of the court. As that is rather a hard word, I will just explain to you how it is done. They had a large canvas bag, which tied up at the mouth with strings. Into this, they slipped the guinea pig headfirst and then sat upon it. (laughs) The king tells the uh, hatter to stand down. I can't go down no lower, said the hatter. I'm on the floor as it is. I guess he's Australian in my universe. (laughs) Um, Then you may sit down, the king replied. Here, the other guinea pigs cheered and were suppressed. Come, that finishes the guinea pigs, thought Alice. Now we shall get on better. (laughs) I had forgotten about how unruly the guinea pigs are. The king presents an absurd poem as evidence of the knave's guilt, and the trial becomes too ridiculous, so much so that even Alice loses her temper. And once again, at her full height, she calls the trial stuff and nonsense, and confidently dismisses the Queen of Hearts' fury, saying that they are all nothing but a pack of cards. So the cards rise up in like a great mass and come flying down on her, which is kind of scary. Mm -hmm. And Al screams in anger and fear, and her own scream causes her to wake back up on the riverbank. Uh, And her sister is brushing what appear to be like leaves off of her face. Alice describes the whole adventure to her sister, who sends her inside for her tea, and as Alice runs back to the house, her sister muses on her adventures and on Alice's future life. I wanted to look at that. We have basically kind of like one 
final chapter that's very, very short. It's about a, a little more than a page about the sister. It says, but her sister sat still just as she left her, leaning her head on her hand, watching the setting sun and thinking of little Alice and all her wonderful adventures till she too began dreaming after a fashion. And this was her dream. She dreams about some of the same characters that Alice had just dreamed about, which is interesting. It's this sort of shared dream. And the final paragraph, she says, Lastly, she pictured to herself how this same little sister of hers would, in the aftertime, be herself a grown woman, and how she would keep, through all her riper years, the simple and loving heart of her childhood, and how she would gather about her other little children, and make their eyes bright and eager, with many a strange tale, perhaps even with the dream of Wonderland of long ago, and how she would feel all their simple sorrows and find a pleasure in all their simple joys, remembering her own child life and the happy summer days. Which to me sort of felt like Lewis Carroll talking about himself. Yeah, I was just thinking that. It sounds like they're certainly not her own children. Yeah, so the way the story zooms out at the end is, is kind of interesting. And that's it for Alice in Wonderland. We're not going to get into the full details of Through the Looking Glass, but I did want to talk a little bit about Tweedledee and Tweedledum because it made me laugh when I read it. I found Through the Looking Glass to be, I don't know if I was just in a better mood when I was reading it, but I was like, this is even funnier than Alice in Wonderland. So when she meets Tweedledee and Tweedledum, she sees the Red King and Tweedledee says, it's only the Red King snoring. Come and look at him, the brothers cried. And they each took one of Alice's hands and led her up to where the king was sleeping. Isn't he a lovely sight, said Tweedledum. Alice couldn't honestly say that he was. (laughs) He had a tall red nightcap on with a tassel, and he was lying crumpled up in a sort of untidy heap and snoring loudly. Fit to snore his head off, as Tweedledum remarked. Oh, yeah, and so then this is sort of creepy. Um, Tweedledee and Tweedledum tell her that he's dreaming about this moment. Uh, They say he's dreaming about you. And if he left off dreaming about you, where do you suppose you'd be? And Alice says, where I am now, of course. Not you, Tweedledee retorted contemptuously. You'd be nowhere. Why, you're only a sort of thing in his dream. If that there king was to wake out of Tweedledum, you'd go out, bang, just like a candle. Which is a very unsettling thing to think about. It is. And Tweedledum says, you know very w- well you're not real. I am real, said Alice, and began to cry. <laughs> You won't make yourself a bit realer by crying, Tweedledee remarked. There's nothing to cry about. And if I wasn't real, Alice said, half laughing through her tears, it all seems so ridiculous, I shouldn't be able to cry. I hope you don't suppose those are real tears, Tweedledum interrupted in a tone of great contempt. It's just so funny and condescending. He's such a dick. (laughs) Another person who's a real dick is Humpty Dumpty. Oh, yeah. In the great tradition of characters meeting Alice and then, like, not recognizing her when they see her again, she says goodbye till we meet again, she said as cheerfully as she could, given that their interaction had been not great. Absolutely awful. And Humpty Dumpty said, I shouldn't know you again if we did meet. Humpty Dumpty replied in a discontented tone, giving her one of his fingers to shake. You're so exactly like other people. (laughs) The face is what one goes by, generally, Alice remarked in a thoughtful tone. (laughs) That's just what I complain of, said Humpty Dumpty. Your face is the same as everybody has. The two eyes, so, marking their places in the air with his thumb, nose in the middle, mouth under, it's always the same. Now, if you had the two eyes on the same side of the nose, for instance, or the mouth at the top, that would be some help. (laughs) 
Well, that's just the kind of thing I'd expect from someone who looks like a fucking egg. <laughs> yeah. Sounding awful smug for someone who's about to have a great fall. Yeah. <laughs> Pride cometh before a great fall. <laughs> There's also one point where the messenger opens a bag of hay that's hung around his neck and... In the bag of hay, I guess there's also a sandwich. So he hands the sandwich to the king, who, it says, who devoured it greedily. Another sandwich, said the king. There's nothing but hay left now, the messenger said, peeping into the bag. Hay, then, the king murmured in a faint whisper. (laughs) Alice was glad to see that it revived him a good deal. There's nothing like eating hay when you're faint, he remarked to her as he munched away. I should think that throwing cold water over you would be better, Alice suggested. I didn't say there was nothing better, the king replied. I said there was nothing like it. <laughs> I forgot about that line. It's just such an annoying thing to say. <laughs> it reminds me of that joke that was like, my 80-year-old grandfather didn't fight in two world wars for this. So it was like, it would be absolutely impossible for your grandfather to have fought in both world wars if he's only 80. He's like, well, he didn't fight, as I just said. <laughs> I didn't say there was nothing better. I said there was, there was nothing, nothing like it. And I love that the messenger is um, a rabbit. He's so fun looking. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about how I want to talk about my childhood experience with. Yeah, yeah. So let's Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, let's talk a bit about why this book has such enduring cultural sway and appeal for children. Virginia Woolf said, "These are not books for children. They are the only books in which we become children." Incredible. Thank you, Virginia Woolf. I love this book. I've always loved this book. In part, I know that my my dad read it to me when I was young, but we also had at home a little cassette recording of it that my dad had recorded based off of a vinyl record that his college girlfriend had had. He loved the recording of it, and whatever year this was, he'd recorded it on a tape player. And I would listen to the tape, like, everywhere. I would just, like, carry it around on my little mini tape player and listen to it all the time. And I memorized, like, huge chunks of it, but I also memorized the skips in the record player. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there are a few, very few parts of this book, especially the end, Mm -hmm. that I don't think I have actually read or heard in years Mm -hmm. because they get, like, skipped where the record was sticking. It's in the sister's sort of reminiscing moment it goes like and the rattling teacups and the rattling teacups and the rattling teacups and the rat and the happy summer days (laughs) (laughs) and that was like i memorized that skip i was obsessed with this book and then when i was in fourth grade we did it for our or we did like a combination of the two books for our school play and i recited the jabberwocky poem oh from memory part Yes. The whole thing? Yeah. Wow. I also loved this book as a kid. I really enjoyed the nonsensical nature of it. My sister did not. She hated this story. Really? Yeah. She's, that is so funny. Yeah. But I always liked the book. And now let's hear from opinions from other children. So these reviews come from Dogo Books. 22 Mr. Eyes said, quote, I give this book a two stare because it was pred predictable. The spelling of predictable is um, pred. Shall we pronounce predictaly? Well, this book may well be predictaly, but it's not predictable. You cannot claim that Alice in Wonderland is predictable. He says, "This book remind me of a movie I saw." 
It is about when she notices the alternate world inside the looking glass. So it's also... Alice in Wonderland isn't about that. That's the sequel, but that's all right. She determines to explore this other world, and as soon as she steps inside, she finds a place much like, yet much different from her home. She encounters a smiling clock, animate chess pieces, and a book with backwards text, but determined to see all of this new amazing place before she has to return. What would you say to Mr. I's claim that Alice in Wonderland is predictable? Because it is, I mean, to be fair, it is a lot like a movie I've seen. That is true. In fact, it almost seems to like really bite off of that movie. Yeah. It's way too similar. My best advice as a lawyer to Lewis Carroll would be to lawyer up because (laughs) Disney is very litigious. Oh my God. Maddie P18 said, I like this book so, so much. It's about a girl named Alice who dreams that she fell into an animal hole of wonder. (laughs) My favorite character is Alice because she is the most creative character in the story. I think this is a great story for girls because the main character is a girl. I hope you like it. (laughs) I think that is so sweet. This is a great story for girls. I love the phrase animal hole of wonder. (laughs) I think that's great. I don't know if the thing that it first makes me think of is a rabbit hole. (laughs) Necessarily. I'm not entirely sure what it does make me think of. I'm not sure I want to think any harder. (laughs) But I do like that turn of phrase quite a bit. When I was a kid, I had a book about puppies, and it was like pictures of puppies. And in the beginning of the book, there were photographs of puppies being born. So that's what it makes me think of. An animal hole of wonder. Me, when my dad took me outside to help the sheep give birth like <laughs> at like four in the morning. This is the animal's hole of wonder. Stick your hand in the hole of wonder and pull. Yeah, please put your hand in the sheep's hole of wonder. <laughs> and pull. And that was not a dream, folks. Who's our next reviewer? Sarah? Uh, Nive or Neve says, It is nice because there are funny things and creatures in it. Weird things also happen. But the most part which I liked is Alice killing Jabberyoki. 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 I also liked this, the funny little hair of Red's queen. I love the funny little hair of Red's queen. That would be a great nickname for the gingers in your life. You're my funny little hair of Red's queen. Alice also does not kill the Jabberwocky or the Jaberyoki. There was a scene where Alice killed the Jaberyoki. I'm sorry I missed it, Nive. Um, I also love books with funny things and creatures. Mm -hmm. The great thing is that there are quite a lot of books like that. Yeah. That's what makes this review so special, is its um, vague, (laughs) broad nature. (laughs) Yes. Popstar134 said, not interesting to my opinion. He uses old-fashioned terms, which I had to search on Wikipedia. (laughs) I prefer the movie. Some chapters aren't very useful, and characters. Very boring. Only read this if you are interested in classics. I am not. You may like the second story. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> no thank you pop star one three four which pop star do you think wrote this i don't know that's a really good question i instantly feel like it's not lady gaga yeah because I, I feel like lady gaga would love alice in wonderland i feel like it might I be don't... dua lipa oh yeah it could definitely be dua lipa <laughs> it could probably be leah michelle 
who's not technically a pop star, but who can't read. Yeah. Or so it has been explained to me. Yeah. Also, I love some chapters aren't very useful. None of the chapters are useful. The whole book is useless. That's what's so great about it. Yeah. Also, I, I do have to admire their, like, honesty. If you're interested in classics, I am not. <laughs> And I love the thank you. I think that's great. I'm imagining them like taking a little bow after posting this review. (laughs) Oh, pop star. Our next review comes from Aria, who says it's based on a true story. And it's a very, very, very interesting book, too. I'm not entirely sure it is. Okay, it's so hard to choose between these last two. Okay. This poster's name is either He a Dream 100 or Headream. <laughs> I don't know which one. <laughs> Headream 100 posts. Ooh, antique. <laughs> With two exclamation points. I love it. It's not O oh, antique, it's ooh antique. Ooh. <laughs> you and I ask what you want to do over the weekend when I visit. Yeah, ooh antique. Antique. <laughs> Um, Our last review from Dogo Books comes from Starfish, who says, quote, it creep at the beginning. Two stars. (laughs) What creep? It. What? It. But only at the beginning. Yeah, that's a relief. I'd be a little worried if it creep, like, all the time. Oh my god, I love these. I know. There's a few reviews from Common Sense Media that I also enjoyed. Oh boy. This one is from... Thaladay, who's 14 years old, she says, This easy-to-read classic is a family favorite. This is an absolutely amazing book for all ages, children and adults alike. Dive into Wonderland and revisit your inner child. Other than a caterpillar with a hookah, this is a very clean, kid-friendly book. Happy reading. Five stars. I love Thaladay. (laughs) That is such a sweet, well-written review. I know. How thoughtful. I also appreciate the heads up about the caterpillar with the hookah. Yeah. That is ungodly. Ducky McQuack, who is 13, said, I don't think everything is supposed to make sense, but it is still really good. You just have to sort of let yourself go into the story instead of trying to make sense of it. Alice is very polite and well-behaved. She's a good role model for young children. A caterpillar smokes. That's it. (laughs) Four stars. These kids are very caught up on the caterpillar. Yes. It's true. Alice is very polite and well-behaved. Yeah. Um, she is inconsiderate of small animals. Yes, she is. I really don't think she means to be. And in fairness to her, the small animals are pretty inconsiderate of her. Yeah. So that's worth pointing out. But yeah, I think she's a great role model. Uh, except that she is a little classist. And Yeah. <laughs> and if I were Mabel, I probably would not like Alice. Right. And I think like maybe don't eat every thing that you come across oh yeah Um, like definitely check for the word poison mm -hmm. by all means but i wouldn't like just leave it at that necessarily yeah there are other steps exactly that's like the bare minimum mushrooms too i would especially Mm, hold off on eating outdoor mushrooms even if a caterpillar tells you to do it Yes. Honestly, especially if a caterpillar (laughs) tells you to do it. I would go straight back inside if a caterpillar tells you to do anything. Yeah. Tweedledum, who is eight years old, 
said, from my point of view, I think that Lewis Carroll's book and his mind is full to the brim of imagination. His brain must have been bulging all the time to create that story. He must have been really proud of himself. I didn't understand anything the Mock Turtle was saying to the Griffin and Alice, but I still enjoyed reading that part. Well, really what I want to say is that the book is great. I would recommend it to all people who like good books. It is a book of complete fantasy. Four stars. That is so true. Tweedledum really gets it. Tweedledum does get it. I like that the common sense reviews are like so much better written than the Dogo Books one. And I get that Thaladay and Ducky McQuack are like young teens, Mm -hmm. but... <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> antique. <laughs> what is going on on Dogo Books? <laughs> Does Dogo Books like release a chemical that makes you stupid? I don't understand. Common Sense definitely has like content moderation in a way that Dogo Books does not. <laughs> There's some quality control happening at Common Sense that is not happening at Dogo. So I want us to talk a bit about what it is about this book that makes it so persistent in pop culture and its legacy. So it's been made into many film versions, which we will talk about. It's also been referenced a lot in music. It was a particularly favorite touchstone for 1960s counterculture. One of the best examples of this is Jefferson Airplane's 1967 song, White Rabbit. Woohoo! I love Jefferson Airplane. This song used to scare me when my dad would play it in the car, though. It made me a little nervous. It draws, the song draws on a lot of the imagery from Carol's books. It's written by Grace Slick, the front woman of Jefferson Airplane, who said that the composition was supposed to be a slap to parents who read their children such novels and then wondered why their children later used drugs. Which is, you know, I mean, obviously the book is could be considered very psychedelic with all the mushrooms and the strange things she ingests and the the fantasy world of it all. And don't forget that caterpillar. He's oh I forgot I, he's smoking a hookah. Yeah. Slick also said that all fairy tales read to little girls have a prince charming who comes and saves the princess from harm but Alice of course does not. She is quote on her own in a very strange place. But she kept on going, and she followed her curiosity. That's the white rabbit. A lot of women could have taken a message from that story about how you can push your own agenda. Slick added that, quote, The line in the song, Feed Your Head, is both about reading and psychedelics. Feeding your head by paying attention. Read some books. Pay attention. So White Rabbit is a song about feeding your curiosity through drugs. And because of its metaphors and allusions, it was one of the first songs that was able to sneak references to drugs past radio censors. Good job, team. The Beatles are also... The Beatles? <laughs> the Beatles were also uh, very much influenced by Alice in Wonderland. It was one of John Lennon's favorite books, and the influence can be seen in a lot of his lyrics and poetry, especially in his books in his own right and A Spaniard in the Works, which is nonsense poetry, basically, and short stories. Paul McCartney said, quote, I like surrealist art. I also like surrealist words. A great example of this is Lewis Carroll writing Alice in Wonderland. It's a crazy thing. You've got a cat sitting in a tree that grins and talks, and you've got Alice falling down a hole and meeting the Red Queen, and so on. The whole tradition was something that I loved. And when I met John, I learned that he loved it too. So it was something that became a bond between us. I wish that I could uh, do a better Liverpool accent. You want to try to say it in an accent, Terry? Of course. A lot. <laughs> 
I like surrealist art. I also like surrealist words. Is this racist? It feels like this accent might be so bad that it made it possible to be racist against British people. <laughs> that whole tradition was something that I loved. When I met John, I learned he loved it too. So it was something that became a bond between us. This is the worst Paul McCartney impersonation of all time. It was real bad. But I don't think it became Australian at any point. No, it didn't. Which is typically where my English accents tend to lead. Exactly. You know what I'm thinking of when we're talking about like John Lennon? And I can't stop thinking about this little um, clipping that we read in the Beatles Museum when we were in Liverpool mm -hmm. that had John's bit about the history of the band. Yes. So Terry and I recently went to Liverpool mm -hmm. and we saw a piece in one of the museums that was written by John in the early 1960s. And it's called Being a Short Diversion on the Dubious Origins of Beatles, translated from the John Lennon. He says, uh, once upon a time, there were three little boys called John, George and Paul by name christened. They decided to get together because they were the getting together type. So all of a sudden, they all grew guitars and formed a noise. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes on and on. It's just very silly. Many people ask, why the Beatles? Why Beatles? How did the name arrive? So we will tell you. It came in a vision. A man appeared on a flaming pie and said unto them, from this day on, you are Beatles with an A. Thank you, Mr. Man, they said, thanking him. <laughs> you are Beatles with an A. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of silliness, I, you can see it in a lot of John Lennon's writing that's not songs but you can also see it in uh in his songwriting songs like i am the walrus strawberry fields forever across the universe lucy in the sky with diamonds those are all credit credited to lennon mccartney of course but it's believed that john lennon is the primary songwriter on those songs which seem to be influenced by carol's writings some even contain direct references to carol's books uh, perhaps the walrus in i am the walrus is inspired by the walrus and the carpenter and through the looking glass there's also Pools of sorrow, waves of joy, and across the universe, which could be a reference to the pool of tears. In The Long and Winding Road, which was a primarily McCartney composition, there's also a reference to a pool of tears, I believe. Cry Baby Cry, there's a reference to, of course, a crying baby and also a duchess. So it's really all over this work. Lewis Carroll is also one of the many, many faces that's on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper album. Ah, that's right. And in a piece written by Sam Kemp about the relationship between Alice in Wonderland and John Lennon that was published in 2021, he said, quote, written in response to the stagnant narrow-mindedness of Victorian society, it's no wonder Lennon fell in love with Carol's book. For a child with a difficult home life and intense creative imagination, Carol's rejection of adult authority, logic, hierarchy, and meaning immediately proved to be a very informative experience for the young Lennon. Reading a book that seemed to celebrate the illogical, the strange, and the different, Lennon felt his own perspective recognized for the first time. That's so sweet. Yeah. The visual imagery of the second half of the Beatles' career is also influenced somewhat by Carol. The influence of Carol's grotesque characters can be seen in the sort of carnivalesque masks worn by the orchestra in the video of A Day in the Life, as well as in the anthropomorphic costumes that the Beatles themselves wear on the cover of the Magical Mystery Tour. And in the video for Strawberry Fields Forever, the action takes place under a tall oak tree, the same that Alice falls asleep under in the opening pages. The last song that I want to talk about, obviously there's more songs that 
have references to Alice in Wonderland, but this is our podcast, so we have to talk about Wonderland by Taylor Swift, which is a bonus track off of her 2014 album, 1989. The song compares a volatile relationship to Alice's adventures in Wonderland and makes reference to a rabbit hole, a Cheshire cat, curious minds, and going mad. Another thing I read online... Went mad. What did you read online? That the song is believed to be about her short and tumultuous relationship with Harry Styles, which is the subject of many songs on 1989. Mm -hmm. And Harry Styles is from Cheshire, England. Oh my God. And Harry, what else is Harry? A rabbit. And a cat. You know, is cats also are hairy. Wow. Mm-hmm. 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 All right. Let's talk interpretations. Let's do it. So because Why? this book is Slip so not. gosh darn weird, people have been trying to figure out if it has a double meaning for a long time. Love double meanings. They do. Especially if the double meanings are about sex. <laughs> Sorry, it's just you said sex. Is the book about sex? Is the book about sex? Tell us about the book. Tell us if the book is about sex. Tell us, tell us more about sex and the book and if they're related. <laughs> so that's another pop song that was influenced by Alice in Wonderland. Oh, yeah, it is. And it was written by me. Oh, um, so with the birth of psychoanalytic theory, people began to see sexual imagery in the book. The whole of wonder, as we talked about earlier. <laughs> the animal's whole of wonder. Yeah. Um, there has been much discussion of Alice having penis envy. Um, that is so rude. Whatever for. I'm not seeing that literally anywhere. There's discussion of when her neck gets really long, is that being a very phallic image? Oh, yeah, of course, because all men have really long necks. <laughs> and I know what they mean, but that's so stupid. Everything that is long is not a penis. I am surprised Freud wasn't all over. Does Alice have an oral fixation? Oh, yeah. Girl puts everything in her mouth. It's true. Or is the book about puberty... More generally, we know that Alice goes through all these multiple size changes. Mm-hmm. And Hepzibah Anderson in Alice in Wonderland's Hidden Messages on, in 2023 wrote, More nuanced readings have viewed Alice's journey as being less about sex, per se, and more about a girl's progress through childhood and puberty into adulthood. Our heroine feels uncomfortable in her body, which undergoes a series of extreme changes. Her sense of self becomes destabilized, leaving her uncertain of her own identity. She butts heads with authority and strives to understand seemingly arbitrary rules, the games that people around her play, and even death. Yeah. Yeah. That's much better, Hepzibah. Mm-hmm. That name slaps. Yeah, it does. Something that the book captures really well, I think, is, like, the way in which the world is very bewildering to children. Yes. And you'll just learn things sometimes that just completely destabilize your worldview. And, mm-hmm. like, it's just a Tuesday. <laughs> Yep. And you just got to keep doing that shit. Just got to go back to school. You just met a talking mouse. Yeah. And it is what it is. That has been, I would say, the last about eight years for me. <laughs> wait, what like, do you wait, mean the st- president isn't the guy who got the most votes? <laughs> and everyone's like, And I still have to go to work? And everyone's like, yeah, come on. That's the way it works. Yeah, this is how we do things. 
And we can threaten to kill people in public. <laughs> yeah. There is also a theory that the book is a political allegory, particularly with the Queen of Hearts. So it could be a criticism of a cruel and quick-tempered queen and a nonsensical legal system. That was something that I thought about as I was reading. I was like, if we're meant to interpret this as a political satire, it is very damning. It is biting. It is not nice. Ouch! So it could be a commentary on the capriciousness and violence of the monarchy. Carol conceived of the queen as a, quote, sort of embodiment of ungovernable passion, a blind and aimless fury. Mm. Is the book an allegory about colonialism and colonization? Alice arrives in a strange land that she doesn't understand, and she tries to impose her own rules and morals on the creatures she meets with disastrous results. Knowing what I know about Lewis Carroll, it seems a little woke for him, but... Yeah. (laughs) The book differs from more traditional Victorian children's literature in the ways that we mentioned. So not only are the books not didactic, but they're not even quests in a conventional way. Alice doesn't mature. She does overcome obstacles, but she doesn't gain wisdom. She gains and loses many feet and inches, but... Yes, and gains a lot of irritation. Yes, but when she arrives in Wonderland, she's already the most reasonable creature there. Hanlon writes in the introduction to the edition of Alice in Wonderland that was done for uh, Barnes & Noble Classics. She writes that Alice is wiser than any lesson books are able to teach her to be, and quests for mastery are constantly frustrated. Quote, Carol added a healthy dose of skepticism for the conventional children's story, a story that in his day came packaged with moral aim and treated the child as an innocent tabula rasa upon which the morals and knowledge of the adult world can be tidily imprinted. Yeah, Alice's encounters tend not to go anywhere conclusive. Normally she just leaves places. Yeah. She's like, I pretty much every situation that Alice is in ends with her just being like, I can't fucking do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Which is so valid. And Tanlin writes, uh, Growing up, which is what Alice is in the midst of, is a strange, nonsensical, and paradoxical event in which boredom and interest, possibility and probability, childish fantasy, and adult reality intermingle. And going off of that idea of boredom, boredom is something that the book, that actually both books, uh, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, explore. And I thought this was really interesting because boredom is such a fundamental component of childhood experience. And it's not really something that I think about that much anymore. I think I experience boredom. I mean, of course, I I experience boredom at work sometimes or like, in my life, I'll feel like I'm bored with my circumstances, you know? I'm like, oh, I just keep doing the mm-hmm. same thing. I want to, like, I want to go on a trip. I want to, you know, meet new people. But the day-in and day-out experience of, like, there's nothing to do is not something that I, as an adult, I experience. But it mm-hmm. is something that, as a kid, is very frustrating. And Tanlin writes... For a child, boredom may be the biggest non-event or riddle to solve because its solution must come from without while seeming to come from within. As Walter Benjamin wrote, we are bored when we don't know what we're waiting for. Like the various creatures in Wonderland, boredom is a curious riddle of wanting something to want. Which I love that idea. We're bored when we don't know what we're waiting for. And that's exactly what happens at the beginning of Alice in Wonderland. She's bored, but she's like, I don't feel like making a daisy chain. Mm Mm-hmm. And so she's so bored, she falls asleep. And that's her solution. There you go. Yeah. 
I wish my dreams were that fun. I know. Mostly they involve me, like, trying to go to the bathroom in a very public place or, like, my teeth falling out. <laughs> Tanlin also writes, uh, For Carol, boredom still manages a moral impetus. It teaches the adult, Alice is an adult before her time, that nonsense is both possible and necessary. It also teaches the adult that nonsense is a regressive fiction that one wakes from, and waking from, then mourns. Yeah. It's true. I love being a silly goose, which is, I think, a good paraphrase of what Tanlin is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Is it time? <laughs> I think it might be time. Oh, boy. Okay. So the elephant in the room is the question of Lewis Carroll's extracurricular Yeah, activities. this is a long is your fave problematic yeah. entry. So basically, to put it bluntly, the big question that people have asked, and also just a general tr- like content warning at this point, we will be talking about um, pedophilia. There's a question that has dogged Lewis Carroll's work for, I mean, for a very long time, which is this question of, was he a pedophile? And we'll talk about that, what the research has shown, what different scholars think. The short answer is that We'll probably never know for sure. And if you are thinking about pedophilia as a the clinical diagnosis that we conceive of today, there is no evidence that he acted on any pedophilic urges. There is not evidence, in other words, that I guess he's an, he was an active pedophile. There is a question of, did he have those desires? Yes. And yes. Um, knowing that that is not the term that would have been used in the Victorian era and that the really the concept of a pedophile is not, yeah, it's not a Victorian idea. So people in his day may have very well thought that his interest in children was strange and inappropriate, but just want to be clear that the kind of terminology and the criteria that we're using is very much a 21st century conception. Yes. He was undeniably, deeply, almost obsessively interested in young girls. Yes. We can start, I guess, with his feelings towards Alice Little, who was his muse for Alice in Wonderland. So that's the one that people, that's the girl that people most often look to, to try to figure out the nature of his relationship with her. She was very young, under 10 years old, when she was quote-unquote friends with Lewis Carroll. She and her sisters were friends with Lewis Carroll. But he had relationships, friendships, was what he called them in his diary, with many what he called child friends over the years. And the subject of his relationship with children attracted critical attention as early as 1898, when Stuart Dodgson Collingwood dedicated the final two chapters of his 11-chapter biography. This is Lewis Carroll's nephew, He dedicated the final two chapters, this biography of his uncle, to, quote, that beautiful side of his uncle's character, which afterwards was to be, next to his fame as an author, the one for which he was best known, his attitude towards children, and the strong attraction they had for him. Reflecting on this attraction, Collingwood proposed that, quote, the one comprehensive word wide enough to explain this tendency of his nature would be love, and basically that it was only in light of this love that we could properly understand Lewis Carroll. It's interesting because on the one hand, like, yes, that sounds very weird, but also if he meant, if his nephew meant anything sinister by that, it's hard to imagine that he would have included it in a biography of his uncle. Yeah. You know, so it is. I think the descriptor is very, very tame. (laughs) Yeah. Don't think that we can read sexual attraction, at least from that. No. um, 
quote. So I guess we can start with talking about the arguments against this idea that Lewis Carroll had an inappropriate relationship with children. Edward Wakeling is a Lewis Carroll scholar who wrote a book called The Man and His Circle, which was published in 2015, and which he goes to great lengths to, to deny this idea that Lewis Carroll had inappropriate relationships with children. He approaches his subject through the lens of Dodgson, which again is Carroll's real name, Dodgson's acquaintances, his family friends, Oxford associates, mathematics colleagues, fellow artists, and members of the royal family. And the idea is to show that Lewis Carroll belonged to very respectable social circles and was like not a weirdo or an outcast in society. And, and the, his argument is that if Carol was believed to be or known to be by other people to be having inappropriate relationships with children, that he probably wouldn't be part of uh, these social circles. Wakeling says you can tell a great deal about a person by the company he keeps. Mm-hmm. If you're hanging out with the royal family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that to me is not honestly super persuasive. I mean, it's it's persuasive in the sense that like, yeah, I guess at the time he wasn't considered to be a full-on weirdo by people. Mm-hmm. Like he was a member of polite society. But I don't think that's really persuasive evidence personally. Some of the most, and this is where it's, it's only going to get worse from here. So some of the most damning evidence, I would say, against Lewis Carroll is his photography. Carroll was an amateur photographer. He had his own studio where he photographed hundreds of children and adults, including famous artists in Victorian England like Tennyson and Dante Gabriel Rossetti. He did have photos of nude children. The children were nude in only a small portion of these photographs. And Edward Wankling, the biographer I mentioned earlier, explains that these nude studies of children were an aesthetic convention of the time and considered to be a celebration of innocence. Um, He argues that we shouldn't see these photographs with 21st century eyes. And it is true that there was a Victorian aesthetic convention of nude photography of children that we would now find very strange and inappropriate. There is a a well-known woman photographer, uh, Julia Margaret Cameron, who took many nude photos of children. So that in and of itself, it doesn't necessarily, it wouldn't have set off alarm bells for Victorian ears the way it does Mm -hmm. for us. And we have reason to believe that parents would have known about these photographs and consented to them it still is odd it is undeniably odd yeah apparently those photos of nude children in the victorian era could be on like greeting cards Mm -hmm. um postcards art (laughs) considered artistic and tasteful yes if weird According to the Smithsonian, London's Daily Graphics obituary of Carroll said that, quote, like many bachelors, he was very popular with children and very fond of them. There was a popular image of Lewis Carroll in, like, the Victorian era of Carroll as a kind of child-loving saint. And it's an image that Carroll himself helped to create, and it suited Victorian attitudes. Our attitudes now, our ideas now about men who love hanging out with children are different. When Carol died, his reputation was generally good. Ideas about him being a pedophile started to enter the mainstream in the 1930s with the advent of Freudianism. However, I will say that in my research, I did find that his friendships with young girls were allegedly a source of gossip at Oxford, even during his lifetime. And it's speculated that this could have been a cause of 
the rift that occurred between him and the little family because of his closeness with their daughters. There is a point in time in which his relationship with the little family changed and didn't seem to really ever bounce back. In 1863, there was a crisis in the Carol's relationship with the Littles. Mrs. Little was furious about something. There is a break with the family, and the corresponding page for June was removed from Carol's diary, so we'll probably never really know what exactly happened there. We do know that his nieces probably removed the page after his death. And that absence is in some ways unfortunate, too, for his reputation, because you're able to imagine... You're able to project. Pretty your, damning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when Carol saw Mrs. Little and her daughters six months later at Christmas, he wrote in his diary that he, quote, held aloof from them as he had done all term. And there was gossip that he wanted to marry Alice Little, who would have been, I believe, 11 at the time. And then there has also been speculation that maybe he was trying to court their governess, which Mrs. Little didn't want. Maybe he was trying mm-hmm. to court the older daughter who was 14 who at that time would have been above the age of consent and like theoretically would have been courtable but the mother definitely wouldn't want uh lewis carroll to court her daughter because probably the age difference and also she was apparently a big snob so we don't really know what happened there but it doesn't it doesn't seem great so the argument kind of in favor of this idea that he was a pedophile would be that he wanted these photographs of children for a sort of personal collection. He could prolong his fascination with childhood by photographing little girls. He did prefer girls to boys in both his photos and in his quote-unquote friendships. Following his instructions, Carol's executors destroyed a collection of nude photographs of children that was gathered in an envelope bearing the words, Honey Suet. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's a shortened form of the chivalric maxim, Hani suet qui mal e pense. Shame be to him who thinks evil of it. Mm. So there is some awareness from Carol that the images could be perceived as potentially erotic. And yeah. to compose this warning and then put it on the envelope suggests that he is aware that this is something that other people could be thinking and perhaps was something he was thinking himself. I would say that what I found to be the most disturbing evidence, I would say, against him is the photos, yes, but also his very fastidious diary keeping. So there's a really well-written piece by Catherine Wakely Mulroney in the 2021 Journal of the History of Sexuality. And she writes about that our single most compelling source of evidence that the author's interest in young girls transgressed his personal standards of innocence and rectitude lies in his own handling of the evidence he created, that he knew that the evidence should be destroyed after his death. And he kept basically lists of little girls that he befriended, how many hours he spent with them a day, and he fastidiously like quantified his relationships with child friends so he kept logs in his diary of how many days and how many hours he spent with different children how many children how many new children he met each day in his later life he frequently sought to have young girls stay with him overnight in separate bedrooms for days and weeks at a time he emphasized his old age and avuncular status to secure the consent of their parents for the visits and it is notable that many parents did refuse 
So it wasn't like this was such a normal Super thing. normal. Yeah. yeah. And Carol would write in his diary about the amount of effort that would go into securing these visits and putting the parents at ease, which suggests that even by Victorian standards, there was something potentially transgressive happening. It's something that Lewis Carroll scholars and I, I guess scholars of children's literature and sexuality are split on more generally. There are defenders who are adamant that we have no evidence that he did anything wrong. But his interest in children went beyond that of what I would consider to be like a, a normative or typical interest in childhood and into yeah. a more obsessive realm, which could be indicative of a type of repression that he was yes. dealing with. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Does this knowledge color your reading of the book or your relationship to the book? Not particularly. I've known for a while now that there was like some conversation around yeah. Carol possibly being a weirdo. For me, it doesn't really because I I don't view any of the things that happen in it as being based on like a, a sexual view of little girls, you know? Yeah. You know when sometimes you watch a movie or read a book and you're like, we are spending way too much time on this. Yeah. There are no s strange images of Alice really that feel sinister. So no, I mean, I, I don't know. How do you feel? Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think because my relationship with the book predates my knowledge of any of this, you know, that like, I feel like my opinion of the book got kind of formed and solidified as a child before I knew any of this information. And so it feels easier for me to quote, separate the art from the artist in this case, because if I had known about this and then read the book for the first time, I think I would be looking for mm -hmm. gross stuff in the books in a way that I, I don't, because I feel like my, my reading of the book has kind of already been established. There was one thing that did kind of make me squirm a little was at the end of Through the Looking Glass, there's an acrostic poem, and it spells out Alice Pleasance Little, which is Alice Little's full name. And that, to me, combined with the knowledge that he wrote, that he hand wrote, like, this meticulous copy and gave it to her... It does feel like something that you do for a lover, like something that you yes. would create for, for someone that you have romantic feelings towards. And that mm. makes me uncomfortable. So I don't know. I mean, I feel complicated ways about it. And I also think it's true that we probably can't know definitively what exactly his feelings were or how or if he acted on them. But I don't think we actually need to know to know that this is weird. Yeah, exactly. And inappropriate. It, it reminded me actually a lot of the conversations that we had about Michael Jackson for a long time. Yes. Before like we as a society, I feel like we're willing to admit that, okay, yeah, he actually was a pet, like he was a pedophile, an active pedophile. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of like, yeah, it's weird, but he just loved kids. He had a hard childhood. He wanted mm -hmm. to relive childhood. And then, I don't know, there is a part of me that's like, Trust your gut. If it feels like it's wrong, it's probably wrong. Yeah. Um, I know. So, I don't know. I think, for me, the turning point for me where I was like, yeah, something's definitely not right here, was when I was researching and came across 
the way that he would log his time with kids and like the overnight visits. That is deeply strange. Because that is something that predators do is they will seek out people and then groom them and accustom the family Mm. to this, to the normality of an abnormal relationship. Yes, exactly. So I love the idea of adults understanding children and being drawn to the whimsy and the beauty and the complexity of childhood and all of that. Um, But it is weird for an adult man to want to spend that much time with children. Like it just It is. is. That undeniably is. And it's inappropriate. Yeah. It, It simply is. You know, regardless of intention, it's not just unnerving. It's not a good idea. <laughs> what was also weird is I think I had this image of Lewis Carroll being like an older man on this boat trip with the little girls telling the story and he had sort of like this uncle or like fatherly type fit role in their lives. Mm-hmm. But he was like in his maybe late 20s when that happened. Yeah. Which is I'm just I thinking know. about the guys I know my age and like how weird I <laughs> Right? If you were like, wow, you spend a lot of time with nine-year-old girls Mm -hmm. and you write about them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the sleepovers are also extremely damning. Yeah. Cool. Fun. (laughs) That felt really depressing. Yeah. It's hard to transition out of that, but we will be brave. We must valiantly try. (laughs) Terry, let's talk about the movie versions of Alice in Wonderland. There have been more than 20 film adaptations of Alice in Wonderland, with the oldest one dating to 1903, which I watched yesterday. And it's about 10 minutes long, and it mostly consists of Alice shrinking and growing and shrinking and growing. Um, Fun. There was also a version in 1933, which was a box office bomb and received mixed reviews, but I thought was worth mentioning because it actually had some pretty famous people in it. So W.C. Fields was Humpty Dumpty, Cary Grant was the Mock Turtle, Gary Cooper was the White Knight, Charlotte Henry in her first leading role as Alice. So I don't know, I guess the screenplay sucked? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But the most famous Alice in Wonderland is, of course, 1951 Disney version. Would you like to talk about this one? Absolutely. So this one um, is probably the best loved adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, but was definitely not a box office success on its first release and received generally negative views. But today the film is regarded as one of Disney's best. I know that my dad loved this movie when he was a kid. My dad was born in 49 and he saw this movie on TV, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And thought it was like amazing he loved it it really i mean i watched it yesterday i I saw it as a kid but i I watched it again yesterday it's a really delightful movie visually and musically yeah no i remember liking it quite a bit i love the scene with the flowers the talking flowers yes the talking flowers are wonderful feels so creative and whimsical it feels so when she's like lost though and it's all black and that's like one of the parts that i remember yeah be very upsetting it's scary i remember as a kid watching the movie and just thinking like oh my god what i would give to be set loose in wonderland like i would just love to just walk and walk and walk and see mm-hmm. what there is to explore now that i'm thinking about that it's also kind of like one of my favorite things about traveling too is just being in a city i've never been in before and just walking and just seeing 
what there is to see and what feels different and exciting and new. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of wonder. Yeah. What a pleasant way of looking at it. Um, fun fact, Aldous Huxley wrote the original screenplay, but it was deemed too literal and was rejected. Bummer. Yeah, I had no idea that Aldous Huxley had any point in his career was uh, writing, writing screen- screenplays for Disney cartoons. That's very funny to me. But yeah, it was like, apparently it was a very literal and kind of meta interpretation of the book and Disney didn't go for it, which is probably... I didn't want anything to do with it. For the you know what I didn't go for was what? 2010's Alice in Wonderland, okay. which was directed by... I haven't seen it, so I'm glad you've seen it. Yeah, I do not like it at all. Tell us. So it's directed by Tim Burton with the screenplay by Linda Wolverton with Mia Wasikowska in the title role. It also has Johnny Depp as the Mad Hatter uh, with, like, just a bigger role because it's Tim Burton, so he, like, has to have Johnny Depp do a lot. This is also very much Johnny Depp's era of just being a total weirdo. Like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Anyway, go on. Anne Hathaway is, I think, the White Queen. And Helena Bonham Carter is either the Red Queen or the Queen of Hearts or, like, an amalgamation of both. It had none of the joy Mm. of the original book. You know, it was one of those... Tim Burton's whole thing is darkness and honestly i i tire quickly of dark interpretations mm-hmm. of kid lit particularly alice in wonderland because it's so charming and yeah. delightful and that's already been done it's been done to death and by 2010 i was just like not interested in seeing it and it's not alice in wonderland like it's it's not a retelling of the book it's alice as an adult returning to Wonderland, mm. and she, I think she was going to be, like, put in an insane asylum or something. Um, and they have to, like, defeat the Jabberwocky. I don't know. It's just not good. It got mixed reviews, and it won awards for Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design at the 83rd Academy Awards. And they are impressive, but it was not... I just wasn't impressed. And a sequel titled Alice Through the Looking Glass was released on May 27th, 2016, which I hadn't even heard of. I have not heard of that either until So this. I cannot imagine that it did well. I read, I haven't seen it. I don't have Disney+. Plus. Otherwise, I would have watched it. But I read reviews of it, and one of the things they talked about was how it kind of does this very, I don't know, 2010s and, t- frankly, 2020 <laughs> movie thing where it just sort of flattens the story and then advances towards a big CGI battle climax. Yes, that is correct. And that just feels so overdone and exhausting. And Um, it's, I'm sorry, I know this makes me sound awful. It's very faux girl power mm, in a way that feels deeply inauthentic, you know? Yeah, and also I think at the end Alice like leaves to go like colonize China. Yeah! Right, she does. She's like, so that's cool. We love that. <laughs> yeah, no good, no good. I think that pretty much is everything, don't you think? Shall we? Maybe time to rate it. Rate it. All right. So, what should we rate it out of? Shall we rate it out of suppressed guinea pigs? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm giving it a ten out of ten. Suppressed guinea pigs. I mean, I think it would be frankly criminal to give it anything less, given the effect that this book has had on children's literature and culture as a whole. It's also like a personal favorite. It has a lot of meaning to me, and I just really enjoyed rereading it. Um, and it's an easy ten out of ten. Suppressed guinea pigs. Yeah. 
I would say if we're considering both books together, the Looking Glass and the Adventures in Wonderland, it's 10 out of 10 for me. I feel like they work really well as kind of a complete whole. I would say if we're just looking at Wonderland, I would give it a 9 out of 10. I'll allow it. But something about the way, the what uh, Looking Glass adds, it just feels a little bit more satisfying to me as a as a whole. It is very special. We love Looking Glass. It's one of the most famous books in English literature, definitely one of the most famous children's books in world literature, and one of the most quoted books, except for the Bible, according to some sources. Yeah, to some sources. To some sources. Do you think people would do that? Just go on the internet and tell lies? <laughs> no. So, thank you all for making it through another episode of Reading During Recess. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, review. Feel free to tell a friend. You can contact us on social media at reading underscore recess on Twitter and Instagram. Our Gmail is readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And to all you sleepy dormice out there, stay reading.